Hello, you're listening to the Beyond Words podcast with me, Michelle Adams. This is the podcast for book lovers who are not ready to put the story down once the last page has been turned. These conversations with authors and industry insiders are all about digging beneath the surface of the stories they write and publish. This is where we go beyond words to get the inside scoop about some of your favourite books. Hello, and welcome back to the second season of the Beyond Words podcast. I am so excited to be able to bring you another series of interviews with some of your favourite authors and industry insiders. Season one was so much fun for me to record, and I learned so much from the authors who took part. Many of them were debut authors, launching their first book into a dramatically different market, with bookshops closed, the link between readers and booksellers impaired, and with festivals and events all cancelled, there wasn't even the ability to connect with a live audience. Although this sounds like a bleak picture, and in many ways it was, Instagram Lives, Zoom book clubs and podcasts all became part of the normal fabric of our reading lives and the way we connect writers and readers. And what was also evident during the last 12 months is that even more people are discovering the joy of picking up a book. Those of us who loved reading already have been joined by so many people who have picked up a book for the first time in years or who have rediscovered a love of fiction. And we have all been reminded of how wonderful and comforting it can be to get lost in the magic of a fabulously crafted story. So it is with this in mind that I find myself once again in the position to bring you more conversations with writers as part of the Beyond Words podcast. And in this first episode of season two, I am joined by somebody who has very quickly established herself in the publishing industry as a talented writer of psychological thrillers. Her first book, Everything But The Truth, quickly became a Sunday Times top 10 bestseller when it was released in 2017. And she has followed this up with year on year success. Her latest book, How to Disappear, is a witness protection thriller, and that is the book we are here to talk about today, with the exceptionally talented Gillian McAllister. This conversation was recorded a little while ago now, so How to Disappear is already available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Her next title, That Night, will be available later on this year in June, which means that if we are able to take those holidays, which we all so desperately need, then these books are the perfect summer read when you are considering which ones to pack in your suitcases. In this conversation, we talk about how Gillian crafts her thrillers, where she discovers her characters, and the value of social media for authors. I hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So it's called How to Disappear and the conceit is that a teenage girl witnesses is the sole witness to a brutal murder of a homeless man by two Premier League footballers and because of that she gives witness evidence but the case collapses and she has to enter the witness protection scheme after she's named. Um, And really, I suppose what it's about is she and her mother enter the witness protection programme and her stepfather and stepsister can't enter because there's various laws in place about who you can and can't take. Um, And so really, it's about a family who becomes split across this kind of scheme where you're not supposed to contact people that you used to know. Well, 
building on what you just said there about it being a family that split this sort of blended family it really resonated with me because we're a blended family I've got two stepkids and so immediately sort of like I could sort of picture myself in the novel but we always think I always do anyway I think of your novels as crime legal and this is that but it also feels very much like a love story between the characters and I know that you've also said before about it feels like a love story how how did how did it feel to find that you were writing a love story if you didn't set out to do that in the beginning well I think I think almost all of my novels are love stories and I think because some are in courtrooms it's been easier to say that they're courtroom dramas but um I really just, what happens is I come up with a crime hook and that just really becomes the vehicle to put pressure on a relationship. And my, I just get distracted by the relationship and that's what I end up writing about. So my second novel is about a woman who um, does and doesn't hand herself in after committing a crime. It's a sliding doors novel, but really it's about the impact on her marriage and the kind of denouement really is, whether her marriage survives in each strand. And, and that's because I just thought it was so interesting to have a secret kept from your husband in one strand and a secret revealed when he doesn't react very well in the other. So I do tend to just get yeah. distracted by... And my, my, next, my forthcoming novel is a family drama, really. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I like to do it. And I don't think many people do do it um, in the way that I kind of do. It's like a love story wrapped up in a thriller. Um, So yeah, Yeah. I I mean, it's what I would want to read. So I kind of just try and write that really. (laughs) Well, it definitely, it definitely is individual to me. I don't feel like I read other novels like that, that are very focused on a great crime story with this sort of legal and, and, and crime hook that is so emotional and it is a really emotional book I mean I not many books I pick up that make me cry but this <laughs> did make me cry so how did you come up with the idea where was the first inspiration well from? it's quite an interesting story really I was writing a synopsis for a book that I had got signed off from the UK and the US um which was about a well it was about two women um one who leaves her car idling with her baby in the back and goes back into her house to get something. And one woman who is late for an interview that's really important and really needs a car, so commits a crime of opportunity, but actually it becomes about kidnap because the baby's in the back. And I was really laboring with it. And I was a bit worried about the kind of baby in jeopardy sort of some women don't want to, particularly women, but I guess men, don't want to read that and I was a bit and I couldn't really find a reason why somebody would steal a car and then not return it immediately in that situation um when the second you realize there's a kid in the car you take it back um so I was struggling in In horror horror. exactly (laughs) and I was thinking I don't want to write about villains um I never really do um so I was kind of struggling with that and then I listened to this podcast in the bath um, called Criminal, which had a episode on witness protection. And they just said this really interesting line. They said, you can take your wife, but not your mistress into witness protection. And I mean, it's not about that. And that's quite gross. But I was just suddenly like, I just thought witness protection is such a sort of fertile ground for, Yeah, I don't know. I've just, I've never 
seen a novel about it and you know it's quite crimey and I just immediately my brain started spinning and how did you then take that and create the the novel well I actually spoke to my dad um who is was I suppose a bit less so part of my process these days partly because of the pandemic but um I said to him if you had to go into witness protection and not take the love of your life, what would you do? And he said, I'd get a burner phone. And that made the novel because suddenly you have the reason they're in witness protection is your jeopardy and they then take risks. So it immediately created a thriller really. Um, So I credit him with that really. He's, He's kind of quite a subversive person. And that answer was quite like, I'd, I'd, you know, I wouldn't obey the rules, which I just found it really fascinating. Yeah. So, yeah. I, he's part, uh, you say less so now, but I remember seeing on your Instagram profile that your dad plays or has at least played quite a big role in, in talking through your ideas. Um, how much do you rely on someone like your dad or your partner to try and talk through ideas to before you reach the point that you want to write? Yeah, I am a, I am a big talker and it doesn't really have to be a specific person because apart from that instance, my dad generally listens and asks questions and it's actually the act of just vocalizing it. I think where you just work things out, but I, for some reason, like to do it like orally rather than just looking at a whiteboard or a word document. Um, So yeah, he, Mostly just sort of would say, why would they do that? Or, you know, why wouldn't they do it this way? And he sort of just puts pressure on the plot. Um, But yeah, I'm having quite a strange experience writing my seventh novel where I haven't really wanted anyone's input because I've always known it's one of those rare beasts that may not happen for another seven years where it just came to me fully formed, all of the twists, and I've just written it. It is. It's so nice and so strange to happen in such a distracting year. Um, but I think, was it Taylor Swift who said her mind, her imagination ran wild in isolation and she wrote that album? Yeah. Oh, and I really? thought when she tweeted it, I thought it's not oh, just wow. me. Because you hear a lot about people struggling yeah. to write in the pandemic, but I have been almost embarrassingly yeah. opposite. Um, that's been brilliant nice. though I mean of, of, of all the positive ways to like deal with the with the pandemic having a creative yeah I think it's the dealing with the change and I think it is also boredom like writing has always been the way that I entertained myself um and I guess more yeah. so at the moment yeah um you mentioned there about your dad and the idea of what he would do if um if the family was split up did you have the opportunity to talk to anybody who actually had been through witness protection no it's um if it's working well you would never know um so I did contact the head of witness protection in the UK and had a very brief call but um for understandable reasons they didn't really want to reveal anything about actually how it happens. So I still have quite a few questions that I still don't know the answer to, even though I've written a whole book about it. But um, I was forced to use artistic license really, which I actually really enjoyed because I'm normally fastidious about getting things correct. Um, Because I just think the more times a reader goes, would that happen? Like, I think you, they're more likely to put the book down. So I try and get things as correct as possible, um, you know, with enabling pace and all of that. But um, with this one, I just kind of 
had to just be like, well, this is probably how it might work. Like if I was going to rehouse someone, I would probably use like, you know, state housing, army housing, social housing. Like that was kind of, yeah, that yeah. was a logical kind of move, but I, I really don't know if that's what they do. <laughs> and also quite freeing, like that just to be able to sort of create something and nobody can say to you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I was quite, there was quite a big safety net there, really, because nobody's going to write on Amazon. I'm in witness protection. And (laughs) 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 yeah. (laughs) Um, With regards to research, even though you couldn't research that, did was there something that you did have to do in order to try to to get this sort of as accurate as possible? Yeah, there's always bits. So the law around test, because in my novel the uh, teenage witness testifies as girl a and there is quite complicated law about the situations in which you're allowed to do that especially with minors um i went to a prison for a tour and i talked about if if a footballer was in this prison what would they have access to so in terms of losing fitness Mm -hmm. and that sort of stuff so there was quite a few elements of it that i did have to research and to be honest I would encourage any writer to, if you can just go and have a tour of a prison and talk to interesting people, if you write crime, you will just, it will just be like fireworks for your ideas bank. Um, So I often find on these research trips, I often don't learn anything, but I have an idea later, which is connected to that day, uh, which is what happened with my seventh novel, actually. Um, So I think it's just, it's like filling the well, isn't it? With sort of interesting stuff. I think so. And I think perhaps that's why so many people have struggled this year, because we haven't been doing sort of normal life things and they don't feel that they've been exposed to inspiring things. So like you say, having it all sort of banked up in your mind of experiences that you've had and experiences that don't necessarily seem relevant at the time, Mm. but are interesting. It helps in these sort of moments when you are exposed yeah. to those things. That these yeah, I found reading a lot and watching TV does help in that respect. But I definitely have found it harder to characterise this year. And I think it is just because I'm meeting less people. Like in normal times, you'd yeah. go to a party or whatever and you'd get talking to someone like I met an airline pilot at a party a few years ago and just talked to him most of the evening because I thought it was so interesting. Yeah. And um, it just goes <laughs> in the well and there is that lack of it. Um, at the moment so I have found some elements harder but in the way that you just have to be a little bit more mechanical about it and like I use a character trait thesaurus which really helps to build around a character rather than kind of meeting someone in a cafe and then stealing elements of them so there are kind of ways around it that's really interesting um social media seems to play a big role in this novel because it's how um, different elements of the story play out and in this sort of in this life now that we all sort of have this low-grade access into other people's lives how did you how did you approach that as one an author that does have a lot of people that have access into your lives in, into your life but also with characters that um, had to try to sort of approach each other through social media with the burner phone and also avoid each other whereas before they would have had such Mm, access yeah I mean in some ways I just think we've kind of sleepwalked into it but it has changed our lives forever like yeah being able to broadcast your thoughts and you know in I don't know decades 
my grandchildren might be able to look at everything I thought on Facebook and download yeah. an archive yeah. of it. Like yeah. it is life changing. And I sort of, a lot of my novels are, my debut was quite preoccupied with social media. Um, because I just think it's such fodder, like it's a new layer of etiquette almost. Like we've all met someone yeah. we liked and then we've seen their social media and thought, I'm not sure like that quite aligns with what kind of person yeah. I thought you were and vice versa. Like some yeah. people are really cool on social media and then you meet them and they've just got their head in their phone. Um, it is really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, and I think particularly, I mean, I don't know the answer to this, but I feel as though witness protection must be a million times harder because of social media, because it's all there. Like yeah. one of the first things my heroine does is look up her husband's Instagram when she's in witness protection. And it's risk-free because she's not logged in and she's just looking, but it's a slippery slope. Um, and I just think there's a whole kind of new world out there at the moment because of it. And I'm not sure we've really thought about it a lot. It's just his massive temptation. Yeah, exactly. Because looking at it becomes, he puts something up that you don't understand and then you send a message. Like yeah. it's easy in a way. As an author, what do you, how do you feel about your relationship with social media? Is it something that you enjoy or do you feel a sort of responsibility to do No, so? I do enjoy it. And I really like to run it myself and be myself and not be corporate and not kind of, yeah. you can tell when an author has quite corporate social media. And I just think people are looking for the real you. So I'm happy to show yeah. my life really. And I do have a lot of followers and get a lot of feedback. Yeah. And sometimes that is strange and difficult um, because they do feel as though they know you or they feel as though they are able yeah. to make comments that they wouldn't ordinarily make. But I think generally yeah. it's, it's a nice thing, isn't it? Like to show your life to the people that want to watch and support you because they've read your novels and I, yeah. I think if I read a novel by somebody and I really liked the book, I'd love to be able to go and then see, oh, that's them writing. Like, I just, I think it's quite a good yeah. compliment to it. But um, yeah, it's not to say, I mean, I do get a lot of weird messages. Um, and there is a, I don't know, that does sometimes feel like there's an obligation to show things, um, which can take you out of the moment. But I think it's just about being able to be like, I'm not going to do anything today, put my phone down and just enjoy the day. Um, yeah. So I guess there's a balance to be struck. I used to, I used to enjoy social media a lot more um, when I um, was first publishing. And I think perhaps even it was before I was traditionally published and somebody was very friendly on social media and I was very friendly back. And then they told me they were coming to site. <laughs> God. <laughs> I was a bit scared. Yeah. And I sort of very slowly withdrew from the conversation and they got very angry with me oh, that wow. I was um that I was sort of not talking to them and since then I've been a little bit more I don't know more mm. protective perhaps than I have been before but it is what you just said there about having the opportunity as a reader to just sort of um to have access to the writer yeah. that you've really enjoyed to connect it is it's, it's yeah it thing. is on the whole um and there are, I mean, I'm very careful not to ever reveal even the region that I live in. And I'm quite yeah. fastidious about if I show my dog doing something and there's a letter with my address on, I will 
cross it out like or just not upload that video like yes. I'm quite careful and yeah I mean the people that watch won't have any idea because we always think when somebody's showing some things they're showing everything there are days where yeah. you know I see a doctor and get you know a horrible appointment or I you know cry over my book and I don't yeah. show it and people do think that you're showing yeah. everything and I would sometimes like to say yes. I'm not actually you know I'm not showing everything there are things yeah. you don't know and there are plenty yeah. of things when you're a novelist that you have to yeah. sit on that are quite exciting that you can't tell people as well um, yeah it's quite yeah. almost a feature yeah. of the author life I think is keeping secrets from time to time um so yeah totally. it is um it's it, there are like pluses and minuses to it but on balance I do enjoy it and I really enjoy to have it um because I've been doing Instagram stories in particular for so long that I almost have this archive of what kind of things I've been up to even if it's just snapshots of yeah. each day and it is it's really nice to yeah. look back and think god that was the year I left the law or whatever and yeah it's just it is it is a nice yeah. thing Oh, you mentioned there about the mm. fact that you left law um, and you're a qualified lawyer that you mm. worked as a practicing lawyer. How does that, how does that um, r- translate into your writing? Well, I mean, I practiced in development and investment real estate. So it, it was not like everybody thinks I was like a criminal defense lawyer or something, but um, it was <laughs> much less relevant than you would think. But I do think it got a lot of ideas at work and I think it was you know if there's ever something on the news like I don't know the Great Ormond Street um case with the unwell toddler the protests Charlie God like we discussed that sort of around the water cooler and if you work with lawyers you will get a lot of different but all very intelligent perspectives I found um yeah and I think just going to law school I think does teach you a certain way to think like about kind of it's quite logical but it's quite sort of like evidence-based almost um and a lot of my books are almost like compiled of evidence like it I don't know I've sort of I did like a courtroom drama where every witness that took the stand had a chapter in their own voice so it was almost like deconstructed and it's that like creativity that is from law and kind of thinking almost outside the box and thinking in lateral ways rather than totally linear um so it does inform and I still my boyfriend is a lawyer so I still live with a lawyer and we know a lot of lawyers and we still talk about a lot of stuff so um I do still get that kind of you know when there's a big crime case like I was just reading that this morning that Italy as two pandemics, coronavirus and the mafia. And I just thought that's such an interesting thing to say. Like, so interesting interesting. how the mafia have taken resources away from hospitals. Um, So they were already in a bad position. Um, A bit concerned the mafia will come to me now. I've said this on a podcast, (laughs) social media worries. (laughs) Um, So yeah, uh, but, um, and I was talking about, that with my boyfriend and it was just those kind of yeah. things I think are the kind of little seeds that that will become an idea somewhere along the line um who knows yeah. how exactly but yeah definitely knowing a lawyer and uh, talking about that stuff is definitely how I get a lot of my ideas 
We didn't talk much about your characters in this book at the moment, but um, we mentioned that they are a family, a blended family, which end up being separated. How do you like to create your characters? Are they, we've talked about your character Bible, uh, the, mm. the thesaurus kind of thing with, with ideas, but do you, do you normally in, an, in a normal world when we're all going out and seeing people, do you find that you get a lot of inspiring ideas from people that you Yeah, meet? I do, definitely. So it's a good example, actually. So Aidan in How to Disappear is a very careful person. And he came to me, inorganically I needed him to be a certain way and I didn't know who he was and I was writing he was very wooden and I got my character thesaurus and I stopped at C and I saw the word careful and I thought that's really interesting and then I thought somebody that would do anything to keep people safe and somebody risk averse and you can kind of almost span a mind map from that trait like so he's a stress head yeah. And he, he's an insomniac because most people that are stress heads are. And I relate to that. Yeah. But then his wife came in the best, most organic way possible, which is I went to have a dress altered. And the seamstress said to me, we've got this guide dog and I'm going to remortgage my house to keep him. And that was a oh. character. <laughs> She's driven by love. She's not careful at all. And that became yeah. a marriage because yeah. those people are so opposite. They can only complement each other, I think. Um, so that's like two completely yeah. different yeah. examples of how characters, some take a lot of work and some just walk into the room. And I just said to her, I just, can I put you in a book? Like, can I talk to you for longer? And she, she altered <laughs> my dress and I asked her really weird questions. but that's incredible that you can talk to a person and have Mm. one comment and from one comment you have this whole character she just just came I knew she would spend money I knew she just she loves everyone so much that she would be reckless I knew she wouldn't be able to keep her mouth shut in witness protection because she she's so sort of effervescent um yeah, yeah so uh, it's funny how it happens That's yeah incredible. I think you have to be receptive to it because that comment could pass you by but I was at a particular time yes. when I was really I'd done the first draft and I never really they never really have character traits in my first draft and I was sort of thinking okay I know what they need to do so I know what sort of people I'm looking for and then they, I think they do just kind of come to you yeah I I think that as well I, I know that you're a, a very methodical writer mm. you have a plan you have a word count mm. that you like to write but I don't know whether you're the same as me but I find that my first drafts are very much they're pulling yeah, so I them around in order to get the story and then the people they become people yeah later and it's, on. I actually tried to change it up this time because I wanted to write this book quicker and in a more efficient way but I just couldn't I got halfway through and I was trying to write really good prose and character and plot and put their backstories in and layer and layer and it just doesn't work like I was just it was like herding cats and I just yeah I thought if I did it slower I would be able to do more but actually it is not just speed it's it basically has to marinate I think for months um and so I've just finished the first draft and I'll start the second soon and that's the that's where it gets hard I think in some ways the first draft is I, I quite like it all bets are sort of off you just have to get it down it doesn't really matter yeah, yeah exactly no <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um the books that you write 
I don't know how this translates to you being very methodical about the way that you get things down in drafts, but the books that you write are really tense and they're really fast paced. Despite the fact that they're emotive and you have these characters that you fall in love with, they do really rock it along and that keeps it so readable. Is that something that you find is there from draft one or is that something that you work on in later drafts as you craft prose and sentence structure and mm, It does depend. Um, it depends because I very often write a first draft and I then know what the book's about and I start again. This one, I think I'm right. going to keep my draft. Um, and I think, yeah, I think pacing does tend to be basically what I concentrate on, like plot and pacing is the first draft. And if anything, I slow the pace in later drafts to fill in that colour. Because, um, right. you know, we've all read a novel where somebody's pursued in chapter one. And if you don't know anything about them, you don't care that they're being pursued. Um, and I think yeah, it's yeah. you've got to find that balance between who are they and let's have some time with them, but also let's get on with it because yeah. readers do get frustrated I think with slow pace um and yeah I've read a few especially in that yeah totally and I've read a few authors who are particularly good at pace like I think TM Logan is really good at pace and I've noticed that when I read him I'm just thinking I wonder why she's doing that and then he tells you and then you think oh I hope she goes like it will say like the person you need to speak to is called X and then you turn the page and it's like X's office is on the like she don't do the she goes to bed and she gets up and she thinks about this he just yeah sort of deals the cards um so I've tried to I really like to kind of learn like as a reader what do I want you want the information and you want the plot and you can yeah. just give it like and it kind of makes it easier in a way like I think you have to have more plot to be able to do that like page after page but um my yes. seventh novel that I've just written is packed with plot and it was a pleasure because I never felt like I was trying to do any filler I was like right I've got to do this bit next and it was I think it's a I hope yes. it will be pacey I mean it's a total wreck at the moment so we'll see (laughs) (laughs) well tell me in a sort of elevator pitch we've we've talked about the plot we talked about the characters tell me in an elevator pitch what how to disappear is about um for anyone that's thinking about reading it how to disappear is really about if you could give up everything in your life to keep your child safe and if you decided to do that, can you do it day after day forever? That's really what it's about, I think. And if there was one thing that you wanted readers to take from it, what would that be? Um, that I think uh, probably above all what matters in life is being loved I think that's probably what you could take from all of my books but you kind of I don't know disappearing is agonizing if you have people that love you and that you love them um and that's kind of the suspense really is in that well they're all apart from each other and they don't want to be well I love this book and we've talked about it now <laughs> for about half an hour. So can I ask you to, to give yes. people a taste of uh, yes, the story? Yes, I'm going to read the guide dog bit because yeah, it's totally yeah. um, based on my experience with the seamstress. Yeah, here it is. It's my favourite bit. Okay. Brilliant. So Lauren falls in love with things. 
It's a lesson Aidan learned early on. Bill was their guide dog puppy. Lauren applied to foster him five years ago without telling Aidan. That was Lauren all over, zany schemes. He wishes he could be more that way, less uptight, but he can't, not since his father died when Aidan was 15 anyway, and he became a man. And so he did the next best thing. He married someone fun. She said she would be paid to maintain the puppy's training at home and to drop him off at school every day. Substitute second baby, she had said glibly. She'd just turned 40. The baby making window had closed and they'd wanted it to mostly, ready to move on with their blended family. No pushchairs, no nappies, no kids club holidays. I have to hand him over when he's two though, when he becomes a proper dog, she'd explained when she sent the form off, when he graduates. Bill went everywhere with Lauren. He rode upright in the passenger seat of her car to parks on the outskirts of London. Should I put a seatbelt on him? And slept at her feet while she watched television. Lauren would use we whenever she spoke about him. We've been to Hyde Park. We've been playing tug of war all afternoon. Aidan could see what was going to happen before Lauren could. The week before Bill was due to be eligible for guide dog applications, Lauren turned to Aidan and said, you know what? What, Aidan said. If I could run away with this dog and not give him back, I would be a fugitive on the run from Guide Dogs UK. And then she gave a laugh, a sort of maniacal laugh that told him she meant every word. You want to keep him, he said flatly. Lauren shrugged. I love him, she'd said. She self-consciously moved a strand of hair out of her eyes. I'm fucking 40, she'd said with a laugh, but I love this stupid dog. But a blind person needs him. I know. The next day, while he was working, a text had come through. Guide Dogs UK said some people do buy back the dog they trained. That was all it said, sent exactly at 1pm, not a minute earlier or later. Lauren had likely waited all morning for his lunch hour. What's their price? Aidan had asked, his blood pressure rising. Lauren had gone silent, unusual for her. When he walked in, she said, don't be mad. He raised his eyebrows, holding onto the wall as he eased his trainers off. He said nothing, something his wife was joyfully incapable of. I asked their price like you told me to, she said, like it was all his idea and we could do it. How much? We could do it if we remortgaged. Remortgage for a dog, Aidan said. We could keep him. The funds are used to trains loads more. That's why it's expensive, to ease the moral burden. Bill appeared then, padding into the hallway. Lauren's hand drifted down to the top of his head and rested there completely unconsciously. But it wasn't the hand that did it. It was the look on her face, a brief close of her eyes, a smile just beginning as her fingers fanned out across his yellow fur. Love. Lauren fell in love easily and she fell hard. Aidan sent the mortgage form off the next day. They gave Bill a middle name, Gates. It made them laugh. He's the richest dog in the world, Lauren said, the day the money came through. <laughs> so nice to hear that again. You're right, it's so perfect for the podcast yeah. that we talked about meeting the woman <laughs> of the dog. <laughs> that was really nice. And it makes me think of you with Wendy. I think it's it's all sort of like, it's about yeah, you and Wendy it's, as well. I, it's weird because I was writing it before I got Wendy, but I've always wanted a golden retriever. And then we got her while I was editing it and I changed loads of stuff now that I'd become a dog owner and realised lots of it was... Aww. And you'd still never put a dog in a passenger seat of a car. I certainly wouldn't put Wendy in the passenger <laughs> seat of a car. We'd definitely <laughs> crash. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, it's been so nice to talk to you about this book. So nice to talk to you and listen Thank to you, you reading it. Um, thanks so much for your time. I'm sure that loads of people um, have read this book already and loved it. And anyone that does pick it up from this from this day on. Oh, will thanks love so it much. Too. It's so nice to have me on. Oh, Cheers. thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Bye bye. Bye.